Hello and welcome back to the KulturmittlerInnen Deep Dive, experts on international cultural relations. My name is Tobias Rohe and I'm very happy that you are with me again in this episode. This time I will be talking to my guest Yuqing Yang about the External Cultural Policy Monitor Taiwan. The External Cultural Policy Monitor, ECP Monitor in short, is produced by the Hertie School of Governance and the Institute für Auslandsbeziehungen and it provides information on foreign, cultural and educational policy measures implemented by various selected countries. In her country report on Taiwan, Yu Qingyang presents insightful data and information on Taiwan's policies to culture and art, language, education, science and research and the media. And I'm delighted to have Yu Qingyang here with me in this episode. She's a research associate at Hertie School in Berlin and holds degrees in history from Free University and Humboldt University Berlin, as well as from the University of California in Berkeley. Mrs. Young, I would like to bid a very warm welcome to you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Ms. Yang, Taiwan, that is the Republic of China, was founded in 1912. Rapid economic development from the 1960s onward challenged the martial law that was enforced there since the late 40s and ultimately it was abolished in 1987 and as a result a vibrant liberal democracy emerged in the 1990s but before we take a look at the data you collected on taiwan's external cultural policy measures let us take a glance on the ecp monitor in general what is the research approach for these reports I think before I get to that question, it's really important to define what external cultural policy really is. We often use it interchangeably with another term, which is soft power. Mm. That was coined first by Joseph Nye um, at Harvard in 1990s. And it really refers to the ability of a country to shape what other country wants through attraction. And this attraction rests on things like culture, ideology, and institutions that stand in stark contrast to hard power, which is achieved through coercive and military means. So how do we really measure soft power, right? That was such a concept that developed really in response to the dominance of American culture back then. So when it comes to, especially, you know, non-Western countries, it takes on different meanings. We come up with a both qualitative and quantitative approach that means we wanted to have, you know, some kind of like standardized data sets that allow cross-country comparisons. But at the same time, we also wanted to know the kind of geopolitical, the policy contexts of a certain country and how it really understands soft power. Yeah, that would be the general approach we take. Mm -hmm. And which data do you collect to cover a country? We cover mainly five policy fields namely arts and culture, education, including K-12 and tertiary education, language, science and research, aka scientific diplomacy, as well as media, so the international broadcasters owned by a country. Take arts and culture as one example. We will look at key indicators such as number of the countries where the given state has culture institutions in, number of artists in exchange, number of culture agreements, and of course, budgets and government financial support devoted to international culture exchange, so on and so forth. And when collecting these kind of data, what are the kinds of difficulties you encounter? Mm, 
Well, I would say first is language, because not all the countries really speak English. Mm. That's very obvious. But the the difficulty with language is not really you know like when you read papers and stuff like budget papers, you always have really good like translators. The initial problem is really where to locate these data. This is usually like we would ask country experts because each country has like a different mindset or like different organizing logic where to present its data and stats. And after that, I think there is also like the problem of transparency because quite many countries they don't have essentially like adopt like you know、um, open government ideology. Especially in some African countries where the ECP is not even that well institutionalized, they don't necessarily like have any budget papers or like clear stats that is for ECP. Yeah. So you always have to like maybe look into the informal sectors or like talk to people from the government. Yeah, and maybe talk to other stakeholders as well.、Mm-hmm. Um, so、yeah. are, are you talking to central stakeholders? Yeah, we do.、Uh, if you are referring. Central stakeholders, as the government officials or policymakers, we do. But most times, I think we prefer first to talk to researchers or country experts that specialize in cultural diplomacy of a certain country, because they usually have like a better idea or the kind of like a variety of resources and sources you are be using. But if you talk to government officials, it takes longer time and. Sometimes it's a little bit sensitive, so yeah, that will also be like issues in communication. Okay, so now let's just take a look at the ECP monitor you published on Taiwan, especially.、Mm-hmm. Why is Taiwan included in the ECP monitor? After all, it is diplomatically recognized only by a few states. Taiwan is included for several reasons, I would say. First, Taiwan is just you know it has this duality in its national identity building, in the sense it shares you know the same Confucian culture as mainland China, but at the same time, from its political system to its societal participation, it is largely democratic. So that really makes Taiwan stand out as a country that has a vibrant liberal democratic political culture as a Chinese-speaking state, and second is that I think Taiwan is just like a very insecure state, in the sense, you know, given its like historical entanglements with the U.S. and China, it wasn't able to be recognized as an independent state, as you said. So soft power or ECP became the indispensable tool for Taiwan really to exercise its influence. And it is also important for Taiwan to use soft power to, you know, kind of hedge and balance the responses from both U.S. and China. This is really highly relevant today, given the global affairs right now. Taiwan serves as a window into the U.S.-China tensions that have been building around. And lastly, we just thought, like our team just thought, it would be really interesting to do like a comparative. Study of China's neighbors, you know, in East Asia and Southeast Asia. So you know, like countries like Thailand, Singapore, and South Korea. We wanted to see how these countries of limited size and limited resources, how they utilize these resources to build a distinct national identity that is accepted and even liked in the international community. Yeah. 
Now, Taiwan's position was a bit different during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Back then, it was supported as a bulwark against communist China. What did the country do in external cultural policy since the end of the Cold War? I mean, Taiwan didn't really embrace the concept of ECP or soft power until the 1990s. As we talked also in the intro that Taiwan was really ruled under martial law. And that means the whole country was like basically under a military rule that banned the formation of new political party and practice white censorship. It was like really in the 1990s did Taiwan start this democratization process. And they had the first genuine opposition party, the DPP, Democratic Progress Party. And in addition to the or like the existing KMT and then both parties, they agree on the importance of soft power. And since then, the two primary goals, I would say, like revolved around soft power is really to first increase Taiwan's international visibility and gain recognition. And second is to integrate Taiwan further in the Southeast Asian region. I mean, the first goal is getting a little bit more difficult <laughs> because of the, simply because of the rise of China. And second is just like every administration, they would have a kind of like go south policy. Well, it's going to take different forms, but the main idea is just to lock Taiwan economically like in the region. Hmm. Now, the um, not under Tsai Ing-wen, like the, um, the current president, she is going little bit more than the economic benefits. So soft power in the fields of education and culture would be played out. And I believe right now there are like 18 countries, so 10 Asian countries, mm. six South uh, Asian countries, and plus New Zealand, Australia. So that that's already a lot, like, you know, expanding through the last two decades. So would you see a substantive emphasis in Tsai Ing-wen's New Southbound policies in culture and language? Culture and language are not there yet, but it's like the big shift that's kind of like marked by her. Right now, it's like mostly on civil society and talent exchange. So they're taking steps going there. And how do you rate the success so far in this strategy? I would say above all, in general, I think her policy is like mildly successful You know, like the first phase of this NSP lasted from 2016 to 2020. And the two out of six policy fields that are relevant to soft power, like I mentioned, are talent exchange and civil society building. Just judging at the data we collected in regard to these two areas in our project, I would say key indicators like such as, you know, the number of incoming foreign students, fellowships and scholarship awarded by government and budgets devoted to scientific and education exchange, there were increases, but these increases were not substantial. I believe there's still room for improvement since the NSP 2.0 is already on the horizon that was supposed to be implemented in 2022. With an update done later on in our project, I believe we can see maybe more success. NSP is New Southbound policy, right? Yeah, right. You already mentioned civil society. Let's take a quick uh, look at that as well, civil society in mm -hmm. uh, Taiwan. What role does it play in Taiwan's external cultural policy? Civil society is really like the political lifeline for Taiwan since it cannot engage in formal and 
official diplomacy like most other countries. So non-government organizations, civil society organizations naturally become like this channel through which Taiwan established culture, political and economical ties with other countries, mostly democratic ones. And civil society is one of the six areas covered by the NSP. But like I, as I mentioned, there isn't like too much going on for language, arts and culture. Mm. It's mostly just like on civil society capacity building. There are two major players in the field. One is the Taiwan Asia Exchange Foundation and the other one is called Taiwan Aid. And they're just working on really like spreading values like human rights and civil society development. And so far, there is not so much success. <laughs> but of course, we always have to remember that civil society is just like the cornerstone of mm. Taiwan's national identity. Just take a look at the most recent well-known um, civic movement, the Sunflower Movement in 2014. It's just the perfect embodiment of you know, how different parts of civil society come together to make a change. And I believe that sends out like a really strong message to the international community of what Taiwan stands for. And that's very strong soft power asset. That's interesting. Ms. Yang, as we mentioned before, Taiwan is still not recognized as a state by the international mm -hmm. community. With this in mind, what challenges does the country face concerning external cultural policy? Mm, I can see several <laughs> alarming trends for Taiwan. The first is that nine countries severed relations with Taiwan since Tsai Ing-wen became the president. And that left Taiwan just with, you know, 13 diplomatic allies, including the Vatican. And second is that the region Southeast Asia is experiencing a deterioration of democratic institutions. And at the same time, China is expanding rapidly in Southeast Asia through uh, media campaigns and economic means. This all together making it really difficult for Taiwan to strengthen its presence. In addition, there are other East Asian countries like Japan and South Korea, all superstars in the field of soft power. They are also likewise seek to exercise their influence in Southeast Asia, creating ever more competitive pressure for Taiwan. Yeah, I see. But still, there's, for example, the Taiwan Academy. So one final question concerning the Taiwan Academy. It is promoting Chinese language abroad mm -hmm. by doing this. Taiwan entered into direct competition with the Confucius Institute of the People's Republic of China. Mm -hmm. What are the differences in the focus of these two institutes? First of all, I like to like correct you. Maybe yeah. also like what other audience would have like in their mind that mm. like Taiwan Academy is like indirect competition with um, Confucius Institutes. Mm -hmm. Like people cannot help compare these two, but they're really like just operating on different logic. I will elaborate on that. The first is that we just take a look at these two. It's like Confucius Institute just has like a longer history and has like way wider global footprints than Taiwan Academy. You know, just like over the last year, there were about 571 to be exact of um, <laughs> Confucius Institutes in over 150 countries, while you only have three Taiwan Academies in one single country, which is the United States. All right. 
Um, so this contrast is just like striking. Mm. And Confucius Institutes and Taiwan Academy, they do have like similar programs, you know, like language learning, culture exchange and community like events. But Confucius Institutes, they are more similar to the institutes we are more familiar with. So, you know, like good institutes in Germany and the British Council. Mm -hmm. And they are affiliated with higher education institutions and universities and provide like language courses, while Taiwan Academy has no direct connection to language courses. They probably would have like materials or contents that promote traditional Chinese, but they don't interact the way Confucius Institutes like interact with overseas audiences. Yeah, I think that's okay. it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, thank you for this clarification. That was historian and research associate Yu Qingyang on Taiwan's external cultural policy and on the ECP monitor. Thank you very much, Ms. Yang. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you too. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive episode of Die KulturmittlerInnen. And I would be delighted if you tuned in next time when I will be talking to more experts on international cultural relations. To make sure that you don't miss out on future episodes, subscribe to Die KulturmittlerInnen right away. You can do that wherever you listen to the shows of your choice, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Deezer or Amazon Music. And while you're there, don't forget to listen to our regular episodes of Die KulturmittlerInnen with dozens of in-depth conversations on the topic of culture and foreign policy. If you want to check out Taiwan's External Cultural Policy Monitor or learn more about IFA's Forum for International Cultural Relations, you will find the links in the show notes. For more information on our organization IFA, Institut für Auslandsbeziehungen, visit our website at ifa.de. That's all from my side. I say thank you for listening. My name is Tobias Rohe. See you next time. <laughs>